Welcome to episode 130 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And let's get straight to today's guest, as we're so overexcited and have waited a very long time to lure her onto the podcast. All our <laughs> listeners who like books will know who she is. And even if you don't read, you will very possibly have seen or have tickets to see Hamnet, the play of her prize-winning novel about the death of William Shakespeare's young son. It's been adapted by Lolita Chakrabarty. She is, of course, Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie, a very well, warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Well, I couldn't be more thrilled to be talking to you. And actually, I'm quite starstruck because I'm a very serious fan of your work and have been since I read your debut novel after you'd gone some 23 years ago. <laughs> so that's it's a very... terrifying. That's a terrifying number. <laughs> it's, well, it is, especially as it seems yesterday when I read it. I mean, it really is, is hmm. scary. But before we get on to Hamlet and the marriage portrait and what you're doing next, can we start by going right back to the beginning? Because it so happens you read English, as I did, at the same college at Cambridge, Newhall, now called Murray Edwards. And I'm intrigued to know how you managed to bypass those ruthless critical tools we were taught to wield and not allow them to intimidate your writing. When did you first start writing after you'd gone? And that did go on to win the Betty Trask Awards. I probably started in the mid-90s at some time. I can't remember exactly when, but I know that I was doing it in my evenings and my weekends when I was working as a journalist. I, I wasn't actually a journalist at this point. I was working on the Independent on Sunday, as was. But I was actually very low down the food chain. I was what's called the editorial assistant, which was basically a kind of secretary. And I used to base, uh, open post for the books editor and the arts editor and make phone calls and run about the office and did a lot of typing. There was a lot of typing because people then, you know, this is back in the mid-90s, would would file copy on fax and it would be handwritten often on fax. So I would be transcribing it. That was basically what my job was. So to call myself a journalist was a bit, is, is not quite accurate. And so I was doing it and uh, I mean, I loved it. It was very exciting work, but I was writing. I was starting to write what actually eventually became after you'd gone in my evenings and my weekends. For a long time, it was an absolute dog's dinner um, and I didn't really know what I was doing and I was just putting words down on paper, one word in front of the other. And so it took me a while. And amazingly, an agent did agree to take me on. <laughs> when I think about what I sent her now, it, it's uh, astonishing that she even uh, bothered to call me back. Um, and she kind of whipped the manuscript into shape before we sent it out to, to publishers. And then, and what happened after that? I mean, Betty Trask, and then. Well, no, I, you know, there's never really a straight line between starting to write a novel and finishing one, and even between finishing a novel and publishing a novel. So it was sent out, I think, to, I don't know, five or six publishers, and they all said no. And then I spent another year rewriting it and redrafting it, and then eventually somebody uh, did did pick it up. Then, so you know, it, it it wasn't it wasn't a straightforward a straightforward thing at all. It's quite interesting because I read somewhere that you said, or maybe I heard you saying this on Desert Island Disc, but you said that you don't write from life. You know, so where, where, how, this incredible imagination of yours, where does oh, it... That's, I mean, it's really hard to answer, actually. I mean, I, you know, I don't think of myself as an autobiographical writer of fiction, certainly not. Because um, actually, I think, I, I mean, you know, I have to live my life and I really like my life. I've got a very nice life, I think. But I... You know, I think if I was writing about my life as well as living it, I would just get a bit bored. I wouldn't really want to do that. So actually, I think making things up is a much more interesting way. You know, I think about the things that I write and my writing life as a kind of one that runs in parallel to my actual everyday life. Um, and one feeds off the other and 
uh, benefits from the other, but I would never really want them to meet too much. Let's start talking about Hamnet, because what's so astonishing about that is the detail. I mean, how do you know all about how they stack the apples and all those sort of <laughs> things? It's just phenomenal how rich it is with all those little details that bring it so alive. But when I started out, I didn't, I didn't want to sit down and think to myself, I'm writing a historical novel with a capital H, capital N. I wanted it to, I wanted to approach it as I would any other novel that I would write. And I think particularly if you are going to write about not only real people, people who lived a really long time ago, 400 years ago or or more than, um, you do have a responsibility to get it as right as you possibly can, to get it as close as you possibly can. And you don't want it to be anachronistic. And you also don't want it to read a bit like a PhD where you've actually just shoveled in all the homework that you've, <laughs> that you've done for it. So I did. I wanted it to feel lived and I wanted it to feel as tangible and as present as, it, as, as, if, you, as if I was writing a contemporary novel. So I did want to put details in. And actually, if, if you're asking about apples, that's, that's pe- how people still store apples. <laughs> Yes, them. <laughs> so they go. don't they don't touch each other. Yes, that's what someone told me. But in terms of, you know, obviously there's an awful lot of research I did for Hamlet that was library based. You know, there's no shortage of books about Shakespeare. But I think the characters that I did find the hardest to locate, in a sense, were the women and the children, actually, because there's not a lot written about them. They don't, you know, despite being his wife and his children or his sisters or his mother or his brothers, there's not an awful lot written about them. They don't make much of an impact in any of the massive 500 page biographies of him that you can find so in a sense to inhabit their lives I felt I needed to quite literally in some senses get my hands dirty I needed to do what they had done you know to kind of close the gap between my life in the 21st century and uh, Agnes or Anne Hathaway's life in uh, the 16th century I needed to get as close as I could so I did actually go and learn to fly a falcon in the Scottish borders with a falconer and I did I made bread according to a Tudor recipe I planted and cultivated my own medicinal herb garden and I'm not much of a gardener but you know in a sense I went on a course actually to learn how to make herbs into medicine that they would have used in those days so in order to do these things you know I think I think what's important when you are writing a historical novel is that the kind of novels that I really admire are ones that wear their history lightly you know I knew that in order to write a scene in a 16th century parlour I needed to know what the walls looked like I needed to know what the floor was made of I needed to know the clothes they were wearing what they felt like what fabric they were what the how the hair was arranged but actually, in the final in the final iteration that appears on the page, you need to show only maybe two percent of that knowledge. The rest of it has to go because otherwise your story is weighed down with all this showing off. Really, I suppose you could call yeah. it. <laughs> so this is uh, method writing. <laughs> I suppose, in a sense, yeah, I do feel it's important. It, well, important to me certainly. Did you find yourself sort of saying forsooth when you went to the co-op? <laughs> no, do you know what? I had very, <laughs> I had very, very strict rules of myself. I had what's called um, the, the basically a kind of forsooth line in the sand that I was not allowed to say forsooth or privy or sirrah or hail fellow well met, anything like that. Nothing could appear in the, in the novel at all. Also, my children were very strict because obviously I, I got very submerged in the world and. I would, I would, I would want to share with my family. But my children um, said that I was only allowed to share one Tudor fact per day at dinner time, and that was it. I mean, I guess what everyone will be asking is, is how did the idea come to you? Did you just happen to read an article about Shakespeare which mentioned Hamlet, and you suddenly thought that's intriguing? I've never heard of this before, and it deserves greater investigation and would make a brilliant novel. 
Well, actually, it goes right back to when I was a teenager, when I was studying the play Hamlet at school when I was 16. And I had a really particularly brilliant English teacher. And he mentioned in passing one day that Shakespeare had had a son who'd been called Hamnet and who he had, he had died maybe four or five years before Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. And it always just struck me this, you know, fascinating link between the name of the child and the name of the play. And even as a teenager, when I was a very long way off from being either a parent or a writer, I... I know that I wondered what that meant, you know, what did it mean for a writer to give a play, a ghost and the main character, essentially the same name as a dead child. You know, I knew that was significant. And I think I've always been amazed ever since that not that many people knew about Hamlet, not that many people understood and realised that there was this boy, the precursor to this play. And also, I just feel, especially, you know, reading those biographies of Shakespeare that I mentioned before, Hamlet's lucky if he gets maybe two mentions. You know, I just always felt he was never given the significance that he deserved. He's always just been relegated to a footnote in his very famous father's story. And I wanted to shout it from the rooftops and say to people, you know, this child was grieved, he was loved, he was important. Without him, we would not have Hamlet and we probably wouldn't have Twelfth Night. That's so interesting that no one... I mean, it's like all great ideas. Once once it's happened, it seems so stunningly obvious that somebody would explore this link. (laughs) And yet... Nobody had before you. It, it's like the lady who discovered Richard the Third in a car park. It's like <laughs> it was there all. The, it, it was there all was the so time, and, but nobody, nobody did it. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are hints of him. He's he. You can see there's a very brief mention of him in Ulysses, for example. Um, and Stephen Greenblatt, the Shakespearean, he had written an essay about it, which I read as a student, in fact. Um, so it was there, but hiding in plain sight, perhaps. And then how was it working with Lolita Chakrabarti? To, are, you, are you happy with the play? Yes, I think she's done an amazing job. You know, I, uh, I mean, it was an extraordinary phone call to get, certainly. I remember my agent calling me up and saying, you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company have been in touch and are thinking of making a play of Hamnet. And, you know, we had this kind of conversation back and forth about what it meant and what it would be like. And then at the end of the conversation, there was a long pause and she said, so do you want to say yes? And I said, oh, sorry, yes. Did I not say yes? Definitely. Yes, please. Hey, you should have said no. (laughs) (laughs) What do they know? (laughs) Yeah. And actually, but I did, I was intrigued because, you know, it is, it is quite an interior novel and it's non-chronological. So I didn't, (laughs) let's say I didn't envy Lolita's job, but she was incredibly generous and she, um, she shared several of her drafts with me and we had quite a lot of emailing back and forth about certain aspects of it and certain historical details. And interestingly, one of the first things she asked me for was a PDF of the whole novel. And she's told me recently that she, she, uh, she took it to pieces and put it all in chronological order. And then she could, and only then could she see her way through doing it. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating process. They've done a beautiful job. I mean, as as of course you'd expect, it is the RSC, but every aspect of it is done with such incredible skill and talent. You know, the from the soundscape to the set design to the actors to the movement specialists to the music, it's all it's all just perfect. It's it's just it's it's a fantastic uh, fantastic experience. There are two things that spring to mind when you talk like this, uh, partly influenced by the fact we've just interviewed Roger McGough, who's put on a Moliere play in Sheffield. And there were two things he said during our interview that resonate with what you're saying now. One is that he sort of said, um, you know, he got to know Moliere. He sort of talked uh, as though Moliere was his friend. And I just wondered whether your explanation of what is, you know, obviously a highly personal part of Shakespeare's life meant that you Mm. felt you had a kind of relationship with Shakespeare that most of us don't have and secondly 
uh, if I'm not piling on too many questions at once. The pulling apart, the physical pulling apart of your novel, uh, you know, he said he couldn't be in the room uh, for rehearsals, not in a, an aggressive way, but once the once the play is handed over to the team that's going to put it on, he felt it was the right thing to do to just step back, let them get on with it and not interfere. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think I would agree with what he says. I mean, I was more than happy to hand it over to them. And I think I always I went into it knowing that the play would sit alongside the book rather than be a faithful version of it. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think they will be two different things necessarily. I mean, it's a very different experience sitting reading prose and sitting in an audience watching uh, actors. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think I was that, that was fine for me. I can't remember that your first question there. To remind me, I knew I knew it was dangerous to ask two at the same time. <laughs> the other one was your your what is your relationship with Shakespeare like? If that doesn't sound too weird, oh. because you've got a much more personal relationship with Shakespeare than most people do have, because you've explored part of his inner life. Well, yes and no. I mean, in a strange way, I do think Shakespeare is almost unique in a sense that we all have a different relationship with him. I think anyone who involves themselves with his work or with his biography or whatever has a relationship. And I think that's one of the things that makes him uh, endure for so endure and has endured for so long. And he is constantly open to new interpretations and everybody has their own Shakespeare and everybody's Shakespeare is different. You know, I think that's what's amazing about his plays. They are in one sense unpindownable, but also open to a myriad uh, possibilities and interpretations. So yes, I, I have my Shakespeare, but you know, you have yours and I'm sure, you know, everybody has theirs, Charlotte has hers. And, and I think that's fine. I think that's okay. And people may not agree with my version of him, but I think what I think what I really wanted to do when I was writing Hamlet was to, in a sense, divorce him from his name because his name has become, and the novel is a lot about names, you see, about Hamlet and Hamlet and Agnes and Anne and, mm. and the fact that I never name Shakespeare in the novel. Um, he's always either the father or the the actor or the, the husband or, or the son or whatever it is, the Latin tutor. Uh, and partly uh, that was a kind of signal to readers because, you know, his name has become, it's you know, it's an adjective. It applies to uh, particular types of words. It applies to history. It applies to acting. You know, it it, it, it becomes, you know, Shakespearean. It, it applies to sonnets. You know, it, it defines so many things that in a sense it, it, it is no longer linked to a man in a way. So I wanted to signal to readers that they that I wanted them to open themselves up to this person who is a human. You know, we can glimpse him as, as a father, as a son, as a, as a grieving, as a grieving husband. You know, I think it, I think I wanted to, to find the actual person, the human, because he is very, he is quite elusive as, as a person. Um, you know, despite the efforts of the world's best scholars and biographers, there's still an awful lot about him we don't know. We don't know anything about him as a lover. And you had a lot of quite hot love scenes in, in Hamlet. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you read the plays and you think, this is a man who, you know, <laughs> enjoyed himself, shall we say. So I, I wanted to be faithful to that. But no, it was, I have to say there was a lot of vertigo thinking I need to write a love scene now between <laughs> someone and Shakespeare. Yeah, no pressure, no pressure there. <laughs> Well, I mean, what's amazing about about this play? I'd love to know how many times have you seen it, and have you just seen I've it at the RSC? Have you seen, have you seen it in London? No, I saw something? it in Stratford, and mm -hmm. I've seen, I saw it in London on Tuesday, um, and I've seen I've seen several rehearsals as well. Yeah. And what was it like the first time you saw it? Really strange, actually. Yeah. Really strange. I think <laughs> I think what's was you know I saw the rehearsals and I went to Stratford the press night in Stratford and 
I think I found myself almost split in two when there were times that I was sitting watching it thinking, oh, this is a good play. You know, I'm enjoying the music and I like the way this is staged. And then another time, another part of me would be thinking, I would hear one of the actors say something and I would think, I wrote that line in my spare room. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, you know, so at one point I was the audience, another point I was the novelist. And yeah, it it, it is peculiar. And you kind of, you sort of flip between the two. But the audiences are going mad for it. I mean, it's broken the Garrick's box office records, this play. Has it? I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I saw it on Tuesday and I was, uh, it was quite interesting. I was having a look around thinking, I wonder how everybody's feeling about this. And I did feel the audience were really behind it. They were really, there's one point in the play where Agnes says something quite devastating, actually, to uh, her husband. And somebody in the, <laughs> in the audience actually gasped in a very audible, audible fashion. I have to say that it was a big thrill when I was walking down Charing Cross Road and I saw the huge uh, holding up, 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 you know, just underneath the Garrick name. That was that was quite a moment, once in a lifetime moment. Well, I doubt it. I suspect there are going to be more. I mean, let, let's let's get on to your next one, The Marriage Portrait. Which, oh, oh, um, before you move on, Charlotte, can, mm. can, um, can Maggie just give us the exclusive about which um, Hollywood star has optioned the rights for the film? Well, what I can say is that the um, Chloe Zhao is signed up to be director and she and I are co-writing the script. But if you're asking about casting, Ed, I have to say I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> any rumours that are currently circulating. <laughs> I'm afraid. I wish I, I wish I could tell you, but I'm absolutely not allowed to. Great. So, so the marriage portrait. Tell our listeners what it's about and what was was your starting point the browning poem and it is it is inspired first by a poem and then a painting so i was just i often reread robert browning's dramatic monologues when i'm particularly when i'm between books because they are just so good you know they are such incredible psychological uh examinations of certain types of minds and they're technically so perfect and yeah they're just fantastic so i was rereading my last duchess the most famous and i was just wondering to myself idly actually whether or not it was based on real people because some of them are and so I looked up and I found you know in if and of course the poem as I'm sure lots of people know um features uh, a renaissance duke and he's talking to a visitor and he pulls back a curtain and he says um this is my last duchess this is my former wife isn't she beautiful and she used to annoy me a little bit because uh, she smiled too much and so I killed her um and it's you know it's an astonishing chilling chilling poem and I just wondered so I looked it up and I found out that, yes, it it had been. It was based on real events and that she'd been called Lucrezia de' Medici and she'd been 16 when she died. And within a couple of minutes, this portrait of her was downloading and it's by Agnolo Bronzino. Um, and, you know, he's, he was a very uh, well-known court artist of the Medicis in, in Florence in the 16th century and he painted most of the family. But this one of her, I think, is particularly unusual because she looks, unlike a lot of his other portraits, who which look very expressionless, she looks very nervous. She looks worried. Her face is full of emotion. And she looks, crucially for me, as if she has a story she wants to tell. And so, and I looked at it and I just knew, it was like a sort of lightning bolt that I was looking at the subject of my next book that I would want to write the story, her story, as she herself might have told it, were she able. It's just so chilling because he's a classic kind of coercive control. I think it might be called that now. (laughs) (laughs) But but you slightly meddled with the ending. Uh Aha, let's hear about that. Spoiler alert. Well, I think what I I will say, without wanting to give too many spoilers, is that one of my 
favourite books, historical, I was going to say historical, but novels, but actually one of my favourite novels is um, The French Lieutenant's Woman by John oh, Fells. Yes. He has a double ending. Well, actually, I remembered it as being a double ending and I went back and reread it and I think actually he has three, he possibly does four mm. endings, which is just, you know, I mean, there's so many things about him that are genius, but that is quite genius. And so I was wondering, could I pull off something similar? Could I give this book a double ending without saying too much and so I did give it a shot and I was really worried that I would get it, the manuscript back from my editor and she'd basically be saying what on earth <laughs> in the margin but I think what I was interested in with the book is the idea when I was researching it obviously a lot of reading about the 16th century and a lot of reading about Italian renaissance art and I was very I became fascinated by this uh, pro, um, process of the, which they which they use called imprimatura where they did um, one sort of painting and then over that they would layer another painting. And the idea of these underpaintings really fascinated me as a metaphor. You know, the idea, it was sort of, it kind of fitted in with what I wanted to say uh, about Lucrezia and her life. You know, that there is this whole, we've got this whole version of history, but actually Lucrezia, people like Lucrezia and, you know, Hamlet in a sense and Agnes lurk behind it. They're the people in the shadows and their narratives often run um, at a sort of counterpoint to the to the actual received narratives of history. So I wanted their, in a sense, to, the ending to be saying that. We're saying, we think we know the ending, we think we know the story of Lucrezia and what happened to her, but actually, this is a possibility too. But again, the level of exquisite detail that you had in that book, and you really could smell, you know, sort of rotting Florence and things. And just, I just <laughs> wondered the whole thing about the zoo. Is that true? Is, was that, did you discover that doing the research? Yeah, was there a absolutely. zoo? Absolutely. Yeah, that was something, that was a detail that I found. So basically there isn't a lot known about Lucrezia. She seems to have, you know, obviously she was born into the Medici's, which is, you know, the most famous dynasty at that time. Everybody's heard of them. But at the same time, within the family, she seemed to have kind of gone slightly under the radar. She seemed to be a little bit overlooked and underloved. She doesn't really merit that many mentions in her parents' letters, for example. But that, I mean, so obviously I read around it. There's an awful lot. Her father's Cosimo de' Medici, who's the Grand Duke of Tuscany. So he's, you know, there's a lot of documentation about him. And so I read their biography and her, that of her mother, Eleonora di Toledo. And one of the details, which, you know, is absolute catnip for a novelist, was that Cosimo kept a menagerie of exotic animals in the basement of the Palazzo Vecchio. Apparently, Eleonora, his wife, hate loathed it because of the smell. I mean, you imagine Tuscany in July, there are going to be certain wafts that <laughs> uh, coming, up to, coming up to the windows. Um, yeah, but he did. He had uh, he kept lions, um, possibly gorillas. Like, yeah, I'm not really sure. It's it's a, such a horrifying idea, but he did. So yeah, so as soon as I read that, I thought, okay, well that's going in for a start. Um, and actually, that ended up being the first scene of the book I ever wrote, even though it appears on about page fifty, I think, of Lucrezia, age seven, being taken down to the basement to meet the first uh, tiger that had appeared in Florence. So just just going back to biographies for a minute. Now, we're actually quite lucky to have you with us because you've had a lot of near-death experiences <laughs> that you chart in your autobiography. Can you just tell us a bit about that? 17. Yes, about. 17. It's I unbelievable. Say, I know, well, I have to say, actually, you're, only meant, more, to, you're so. only meant to get nine chances. <laughs> That's a cat. That's a cat. Maybe humans have more. Yeah, there were actually more, some of, some of which uh, didn't, it just didn't come off the cutting room floor. Uh, yes, but it just occurred to me that the near-death experience is an interesting lens through which to look at a life 
so I just yeah I didn't and I, I never thought I would write a memoir it wasn't something that ever really occurred to me and I am quite a private person my husband says I'm the most secretive person he's ever met but it just it just seemed to me and I think coming up with the structure was quite liberating in a sense because it's it's non-chronological it's arranged by body part rather than by time in a sense and um so it kind of allowed me to write about these experiences that I had without it being I never wanted to write the kind of memoir that was a tax on my friends and families you know sometimes you read people's memoirs and it, I mean my breath is completely taken away by the exposure that the writer um you know the sort of light that it shines on other people who actually may not have wanted to be written about but coming up with this non-chronological structure that skips about in time and focuses on, on each event individually allowed me to uh, write it without um, exposing too much of the, of the other people in my life. Because you were a very illicit child, weren't you? I mean, your first near-death yeah. experience was, were you eight when you... Yeah, so I was eight when I contracted uh, viral encephalitis and it affected my cerebellum. And I was in bed for about a year. Yeah, I was off school for almost two years. I think particularly being so ill for so long as a child, yeah, I think you, you emerge from serious illness, whatever age you are, um, a different person, you know, I think severe illness does reconfigure you. It's a bit like passing through a fire. You're, you know, the elements are the same, but everything's been changed in the self. Everything's been altered. Maybe it influenced you as a writer, sort of staying, staying at home, not being at school. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. And also, yeah, I think I became, you know, I always say, when people say to me, I want to be a writer, I always say, well, you have to first be a reader. And I think that's where, I mean, I'd, I'd always loved books. I know I remember have early memories of really being loved, being read to and, learning to read but certainly in the time that I was off school for so long that's basically all I did <laughs> you know when I couldn't physically hold a book I listened to books on tape and I listened over and over again to Felicity Kendall reading My Naughty Little Sister and even now when I hear her voice it can, trans <laughs> it can transport me back to that time but when I was physically able to hold a book that's, that's all I did and I read books over and over again I must have read The Moomins and The Secret Garden 17, 18, 20 times easily. You, you mentioned your husband William Sutcliffe, mm. who's a writer. Quite tough on him, having such an unbelievably successful wife. Oh, <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure he would agree with that. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, I think we're... I think having two... A uh, couple in the same job it makes everything a lot easier. I'm sure it's the same with any, any couple who happen to be in the same line of work. There's a lot less you have to explain. You know, if, if I go into Will's study and he says, no, 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 you can't come in now... I don't take it amiss. I just think, okay, well, he's he's just concentrating, so, and he and he is always my first reader. He's pretty mean, actually. He can be quite mean when I give him my uh, my manuscripts. But he's he's usually. I mean, I think you know. I think it's a very particular relationship. You've got to have if you're showing someone your early work, it's got to be someone you really trust, and it's and it's not necessarily you don't necessarily want the response. Yes, it's lovely. Don't change a word because actually, what you need is someone to really take you to task and say this works and that's fine, but that's absolute nonsense. What are you talking about there? Oh, I just wanted to dwell, obviously, on near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to make light of the fact that you've had 17 brushes with death. Uh, but mm -hmm. can you give us some of the more interesting ones? <laughs> I, oh, mean, um, I mean, have you, well, was it uh, being run over by a car, a crane yes, falling on I, top of you? <laughs> no, I nearly got run over by a car. I, um, as a teenager, I very foolishly jumped off a harbour wall into an outgoing tide. What else did I do? Um, I very stupidly agreed to um, go in the in, in on circus to be the uh, recipient of a knife thrower. Uh, You're what kidding else? me. They're meant to be safe. Isn't it? 
I know, I know. It's surprising, but that's the kind of thing you do. When so you got hit by the foolish. knife? No, I didn't. I had to. I, I was pinned to a board, and he was throwing knives to hopefully uh, to either side of me. But so I, yeah, I know. Well, it's the kind of thing you do when you're a crazy teenager at Glastonbury, isn't it? I can't think now. My mind's gone blank. Don't worry, everyone. Oh yes, yeah, so I was the near, I was in a. I was in a a, a, a plane, an almost in a plane crash, but it didn't crash, but it kind of dropped through the air. So yeah, all kinds of. All kinds of different things. Some more serious than others. Well, thank goodness you've you've survived seventeen near misses. <laughs> thank you. I have a friend who calls that book "Oh God, Oh God, Oh God," rather than "I am, I am, I am." <laughs> well, Maggie, that was just fantastic. Thank you so much for. Oh, not at all. It's my pleasure. It was really nice to meet you both. Next week, we're going to be covering a groundbreaking report which reveals that the majority of Black people in Britain are disappointed by their representation in culture. 10,000 Black Britons took part in an extensive survey about many aspects of life, from health and justice to education and the media. The research was undertaken by the Black British Voices Project, which is made up of the Department of Sociology at Cambridge University, the management company iCubed, and The Voice, the UK's only magazine dedicated to Black people. Yes, and to discuss the findings and what on earth we can do about them are Dr Maggie Semple, who co-founded IQ with Jane Orimosu and led the research. With her will be Nels Abbey, author, broadcaster and former banker, who co-founded the Black Writers Guild. This was the first survey of this kind ever undertaken and absolutely essential reading for anyone interested in culture and the arts. So don't fail to tune in next week to find out why the cultural sector is such a disappointment to black communities currently and what can be done to change things. See you next week. Bye.